Do you know him as Bones or Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy from the recent reboot of the Star Trek franchise? Or do you know him as Dame Vako from the Vin Diesel sci-fi film Riddick? What about the Russian assassin that was sent to kill Matt Damon's character Jason Bourne in the Bourne Supremacy? If you're like me, you know Carl Urban as the horse-riding Rohirrim from the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films named Eomir. Or, more accurately, he doesn't show up until the Fellowship makes it to Rohan, so in the second movie, 2002's The Two Towers. Before he did The Lord of the Rings, though, Carl spent the years 1996 to 2001 doing a series of performances as Julius Caesar on the TV show Xena Warrior Princess. Maybe it was doing a period project like that that was the reason that they cast him in The Lord of the Rings. Or maybe it was more because Carl was from New Zealand, where the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy was shot, thanks to it also being Peter Jackson's home. That's not the only role he did during that time. He actually did some crossover episodes of TV's Hercules as well, playing the same character, but it was probably the most consistent. One of those films that he worked on during his on-again, off-again role on Xena was a low-budget comedy film called Via Satellite. I don't think it ever made it to theaters in the U.S., but Via Satellite was written and directed by another New Zealander, Anthony McCartan. It wouldn't surprise me if you've never heard of him. After all, writers don't get the same level of media coverage as actors do. But even if you haven't heard of Anthony, you've probably heard of some of his projects. Most notably was his work writing the screenplay for 2014's biopic about the life of Stephen Hawking called The Theory of Everything. But that's not the movie we're covering today. While he's already working on multiple films, today we're going to be looking at Anthony's most recent film to date, a film that's coming out next week on November 22nd. It's another historical biographical film called Darkest Hour. There's multiple movies with that name, but this latest one tells the story of Winston Churchill just after he became Prime Minister during World War II. And since I mentioned it's coming out next week, that means that this is another pre-release episode. So maybe you're looking forward to seeing the movie. Maybe you've never heard of it and this might intrigue you enough to head to the theater. Or maybe you're in the car right now on the way to the theater. Regardless of when or how you're listening to this, let's take some time to learn about Winston Churchill so when you do go see Darkest Hour, you'll be able to compare history with what you see in the movie. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we learn about Winston Churchill, it's time for Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'll give you three facts, and two of them are true. One of them is a lie. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Winston Churchill took over as Prime Minister when Neville Chamberlain passed away. Number two, Winston Churchill was appointed to the position of the First Lord of Admiralty, not once, but twice. Number three, Winston Churchill served in the military before starting his political career. 
Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode. Then, by a process of elimination, you'll know which one was a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. By the way, do you have your own Base on a True Story stickers yet? They're completely free. I'll send you a sticker when you subscribe, rate, and review the show. And then send me an email with the screenshot of your review. Unfortunately, I need that email so I can get back in touch with you privately to get an address to send the sticker to. Places like Apple Podcasts don't actually share a way to get in contact with you. It just shows some username. Anyway, if you're driving and can't do it at this moment, no problem. Check out basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash giveaway to get all the details. And with that, let's dive into the true story that inspired the upcoming Hollywood film, Darkest Hour. While this summer's blockbuster film, Dunkirk, told the story of British and Allied soldiers stranded on the beaches around the beginning of World War II, it was told from the perspective of those hands-on in the evacuation. Behind the scenes, arguably one of the most important people involved in that was the brand new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Winston Churchill. That's whose story gets told in Darkest Hour, with actor Gary Oldman transforming himself completely to play the role of Churchill. Before we get to the point of Churchill becoming Prime Minister, though, let's learn a little bit more about his early days. Winston Churchill was born on November 30th, 1874, so in just a couple of weeks we'll be celebrating his 143rd birthday. Winston's mother was a woman named Jeanette Jerome, She was an American, born in Brooklyn to an American investor. Known as quite a looker around social circles, in 1873, Jeanette met Lord Randolph Churchill. He was the son of a man named John Spencer Churchill, who was the seventh Duke of Marlborough, along with John's bride, the Duchess of Marlborough, Lady Frances Anne Emily Vane. The young Lord Randolph Churchill and Jeanette Jerome seemed to have hit it off pretty quickly after their meeting in 1873, because on April 15th, 1874, the two were married. Now, if you've been paying attention to the dates here, you'll know that things might not line up in a traditional sense. Whether or not Winston was conceived out of wedlock is something historians haven't been able to confirm with absolute proof, but if you do the math on that, since we know little Winston was born on November 30th of that same year, that's seven months and 15 days after Jeanette Jerome became Jeanette Jerome Churchill. Lord Randolph Churchill and his new bride made for a great pair. He was the politician and her the socialite to actively support his actively growing political career. Unfortunately, this meant as he was growing up, Winston didn't get a lot of attention from his parents. So the Churchills hired a nanny in 1875, a woman named Elizabeth Everest. By the time Winston's brother John was born in 1880, For the most part, the two boys were raised by their nanny. Winston would later recall in his autobiography, I loved my mother dearly, but at a distance. My nurse was my confidant. As a child, Winston Churchill was not a great student. Perhaps that's one reason his parents decided to send him to a private boarding school for boys. 
on April 17, 1888, Winston arrived for his first day at Harrow School in London. It didn't really help. By that, what I mean is that Winston still was not a great student at Harrow either. If there's a moment that sticks out during his time at Harrow, it'd be when he managed to memorize and recite all 1,200 lines from a collection of poems by Thomas Macaulay called Lays of Ancient Rome. He did this for a competition at Harrow and ended up getting a prize for his efforts. But looking at this event through the lens of history, it would be one of the first hints at the great public speaker he would become. But for the most part, Winston seemed to hate his time at Harrow. If there was something he enjoyed about the school, it was when he joined the Harrow Rifle Corps. That led him to enroll in a prep program for the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. As a little side note, today it's called the Royal Military Academy. But his poor academics almost came back to haunt him. When he applied for the Royal Military College in 1893, he failed the entrance exam. So he tried again. And again, he failed. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Finally, third time was the charm as he was accepted. Of course, it might have helped that Winston decided to apply for the cavalry instead of the infantry since the requirements for cavalry required less math, and the young Winston didn't really like math. But he did like his new career path as a soldier. Then tragedy struck. On January 24, 1895, Winston's father, Lord Randolph Churchill, passed away after a slow and painful battle with syphilitic paresis. In what must have been a roller coaster of emotions for him, just under a month later, on February 20th, Winston graduated from the Royal Military College 20th in a class of 130. He received his commission to the Queen's Royal Hussars, the fourth Hussars to be precise. Winston's military career was not long, but throughout he wrote many reports for newspapers back home in the UK. He served for a while in India and Sudan, where he fought in the Battle of Omdurman in 1898. Or, as some historians refer to that battle, a massacre. The British forces had about 8,200 soldiers, along with about 17,600 Egyptian and Sudanese troops. 
On the other side were about 60,000 soldiers. Well, maybe using the term soldiers isn't quite right. Winston Churchill would later refer to them as looking like a 12th century army that the British referred to as dervishes. They were armed with spears and swords. Sure, they had some guns, not enough for everybody, but they did have the numbers. But the British had brought new technology to the battlefield in the form of about 40 water-cooled machine guns that could fire around 600 rounds a minute. After about five hours, 11,000 of the dervishes had been slaughtered, another 16,000 wounded. On the British side, only about 500 men had been killed or wounded. Politically, this was the battle that secured the British and Egyptian hold on the region around the relatively newly built Suez Canal. After seeing what could have only been unspeakable death and destruction, Winston decided to end his military career and instead turned to the power of the written word. In 1899, he left the army and joined the Morning Post as a newspaper war correspondent. But his career as a war correspondent would be short-lived too, after a brush with death. It happened on November 15, 1899, while he was reporting on the Anglo-Boer War in South Africa for the Morning Post. Winston joined some British troops on an armored train as it left the town of Estcourt, headed north. Only about 16 miles, or about 25 kilometers, to the north of Estcourt, they passed the town of Cheveley. As the train passed Cheveley, they came across enough Boer troops that they decided to return to Estcourt. They'd only made it about five miles, or about eight kilometers back. If you're looking at it on a map, it's near the town of Freer. That's when the Boers opened fire, and many of the cars on the train were derailed thanks to rocks that they had placed on the tracks. Both sides were engaged in open gunfire when Winston helped supervise the clearing of the cars that had been damaged by the derailing from the tracks. They were trying to clear the tracks enough so that they could ride the engine back. And it worked. While some of the troops provided cover, Winston and many of the wounded rode the engine back to Freer. Then, securing those men, Winston walked back to the British position. But the Boers were too much, and the British were forced to surrender. Winston was among those captured, along with about 80 other soldiers. He remained a prisoner for a couple months until he managed to escape by hiding on a coal train. There's some conflicting reports about the bounty put up on Winston's head for recapture. Some reports say it was about 25 pounds. That's roughly 3300 in today's U.S. dollars. Uh, others say it was only 25 shillings. That's only about $160 in today's U.S. money. In either case, it wasn't much. After the train stopped, Winston was quite hungry. He risked exposing himself by knocking door-to-door -door in search of food. Fortunately, behind one of those doors was a man named John Howard. John was an Englishman and hid Winston, giving him food and shelter from the Boers, searching for the escaped prisoner. John helped Winston find his way out, and Winston managed to sneak back to the British consul about 300 miles, or some 480 kilometers away. The next year, Winston decided to put his military career fully behind him and turned to politics as he became a member of parliament. Well, for a while, at least. 
when World War I came around, Winston served as the first Lord of Admiralty. If you're from the U.S., that's a position that's similar to the Secretary of the Navy. During the war, Winston did some good and some not so good. If I were to pick two extreme examples, probably the example of the not-so-good side would be in 1915, when Winston Churchill was one of the Allied leaders who planned an invasion of Turkey. His idea was that the invasion would help drive the Ottoman Empire out of the war, but it didn't go so well. After about nine months of vicious fighting, some 250,000 soldiers had died on the Allied side, with about the same on the Ottoman side. That's almost half a million people dead before the Allies finally withdrew in defeat. It was an abysmal and costly failure. On the other extreme, though, after this failure, Winston went to the front line as a commander of the 6th Royal Scots Fossilers. Even though there's plenty of debate over how much choice Winston had in resigning his role in the Admiralty, this move gained Winston some credit from historians for opting to not stay safe in a political role while sending other young men to die. He went to the front line himself. However, Winston wasn't done with politics, returning to the government before the war's end. After World War I, there was a brief period of peace in the world before Hitler's rise to power in Germany changed all of that. Looking back through the lens of history, it's hard to understand how so many could turn a blind eye to Hitler's rise. While there's plenty of great podcasts and sources out there that dive deeper into exactly how that happened, for the purposes of our story today, it's important to remember that the world had just seen tens of millions of deaths in World War I. No one was in a hurry to rush to yet another war. Diplomatic and peaceful solutions were the first thing on everyone's minds. Despite many disagreeing with him, Winston Churchill was not sold on a diplomatic solution. In the mid-1930s, he actively pushed for a rearmament campaign in Britain. Sadly, his preparations turned out to be needed when, as we all know, World War II broke out on September 1, 1939, as Germany invaded Poland. Two days later, Britain officially declared war on Germany. That same day, interestingly, Winston Churchill once again was appointed to the position of First Lord of the Admiralty. If you listen to the episode about Dunkirk, you'll know what happened next. It was a whirlwind of events that are the basis of the movie Darkest Hour. While the German offensive was pushing back the Allied forces back at home, Winston Churchill went from his position as First Lord of the Admiralty to becoming a member of the War Cabinet, to becoming the chairman of the Military Coordinating Committee, the latter of which being in April of 1940. As the German aggression continued, support for Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain waned. On May 10, 1940, King George VI replaced Prime Minister Chamberlain. Now both the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Minister of Defense, the country turned to Winston Churchill to help them in, as the movie claims, their darkest hour. And it's true that things at that moment could not have looked too bright. Despite the miracle at Dunkirk, that was a tactical retreat. It really wasn't a strategic victory at all. 
It was giving up the victory today so you could survive to fight another day. For the United Kingdom, 1940 was probably one of the darkest years in modern history. Within Winston Churchill's lifetime, Britain had gone from one of the world's powers to having the enemy at the doorstep just across the English Channel. As the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill's knack for public speaking would come into play. That's not to say he didn't have some great speeches before, but I don't think anyone can deny that Winston Churchill's speeches played a big role in helping the British people get past some of the darkest days during the war. And if you've seen Christopher Nolan's epic film Dunkirk, you'll know about one of the first speeches Winston Churchill gave after becoming the Prime Minister. Commonly referred to as the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech, it was actually one of three major speeches that Winston Churchill gave to Parliament during his early days as Prime Minister. The first was on May 13th, just three days after becoming the Prime Minister. That speech is commonly called Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Then there was the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech that he gave on June 4th, 1940. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Then, a couple weeks later, on June 18th, he gave the This Was Their Finest Hour speech. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. That's just a sample of those speeches. I'll make sure to add a link to those in the show notes over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Or if you're a patron, I'll put them together in a little bonus episode for you. To say that it was a rocky point in history for the people of the United Kingdom is an understatement. With the unstoppable German offensive, the events at Dunkirk seemed to be a little bit of a silver lining. Then the cloud darkened again for Britain. On the heels of Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain started on July 10, 1940. That was a vicious air battle that saw German air forces clash in the skies over England with the British forces. It was, well, as the name implies, quite literally a battle for Britain. That name, though, comes from a speech that Winston Churchill gave just days after the evacuation at Dunkirk. With the last of the troops leaving or surrendering at Dunkirk on June 4th, a day that Churchill gave yet another speech. On June 18th, Churchill gave yet another speech. That was the finest hour speech, and this time he said, What General Wagand has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. And he was right. Despite being outnumbered, 
and despite just coming off the receiving end of the German blitzkrieg that led to Dunkirk, those same air forces, the Luftwaffe, continued their onslaught over British soil. The British were defending their homeland. Who knows what would have happened had they lost. But they didn't. The Battle of Britain lasted for three months and three weeks. While it was all air battles, at the time, many believed the Germans would land troops on their soil, on the British soil. After all, why not? The Germans had proven their blitzkrieg was unstoppable throughout their offensive in France. Why stop now? No German invasion came. And on October 31st, the Battle of Britain came to an end. The British managed a decisive victory. It was another sliver of light for a battered, damaged, and bombed country. Then the cloud darkened yet again. About six months after being replaced by Winston Churchill as Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain passed away. That was on October 9, 1940, so technically five months and 30 days, just one day shy of being exactly six months. Three days later, Winston Churchill gave yet another speech, this time in honor of Neville Chamberlain. Even though Churchill had been one of his most vocal critics when Chamberlain was prime minister, Churchill recognized that above all else, the British people needed to stand together against the German aggression. With one of the most difficult years coming to a close, on December 23, 1940, Churchill went on the offensive, not with military might, but he broadcast a speech aimed directly at the Italian people saying things like, quote, We have never been your foes till now, end quote. And another quote, It is all because of one man, one man, and one man alone has ranged the Italian people in deadly struggle against the British Empire and has deprived Italy of the sympathy and intimacy of the United States of America, end quote. It was a clear campaign to start turning the loyalty of the Italian people against their leader, Benito Mussolini, who had dragged them into World War II on the side of the Nazis. Churchill knew it wouldn't be something that would end the war right then in 1940. He knew it was a long-term strategy and that there would be plenty more sadness and loss ahead. But as we now know, the year 1940 was one that was pivotal for the British people, and also for the world. Winston Churchill's leadership and motivational speeches were just what the British needed to get through, as the movie title says, their darkest hour. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. And now it's your turn to compare Hollywood with history, now that you know a little bit more about Winston Churchill and some of the things that were going on, when you go see Darkest Hour, how do you think it did historically? Winston Churchill is one of those historical figures that could have an entire podcast series dedicated just to him. The same goes for World War II in general. And although we ended our story today as the year 1941 was about to begin, it's not like the next few years were all sunshine and daisies. 
If you want to learn more about Winston Churchill, I'd recommend checking out the International Churchill Society's website at www.winstonchurchill.org. I'll add links to that and many more resources for you to learn even more over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here's another five-star review. This one comes from CJ Net Mobile over on Apple Podcasts with the title, Loving It. Only just come across Dan's Based on a True Story podcast, and I must say that I am really enjoying what I'm hearing. Very interested in hearing the true stories behind some movies I really like. Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind, to name just two. Working my way through the back catalog now and looking forward to upcoming episodes. Thanks so much for the kind words, CJ Net Mobile. It really means a lot when you not only take the time to listen, but listen to multiple episodes and take the time to leave a rating and review. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks so much. Oh, and by the way, CJ Net Mobile, if you want a sticker like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, just shoot me an email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Let me know that you're CJ Net Mobile, and then send me an address that you want me to ship the sticker out to, and I'll make sure to get that in the mail. And for anyone else listening, if you leave a rating and review, send me an email, let me know that you left the rating and review, and then an address to send it to, and I'll make sure to get that out. Okay, now it's time to answer the two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Winston Churchill took over as Prime Minister when Neville Chamberlain passed away. Number two, Winston Churchill was appointed to the position of the first Lord of the Admiralty not once, but twice. Number three, Winston Churchill served in the military before starting his political career. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number one. As we learned, Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister in May of 1940. Neville Chamberlain passed away about six months later in November. Have you done more research into Winston Churchill's life? Or have you seen Darkest Hour and want to talk about the movie? Why not join the Based on a True Story Facebook group and share it with the community? Oh, and don't forget you can pick up your own Based on a True Story t-shirts and merch over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. You can also follow the show on Instagram. It's at Based on a True Story Podcast, where I like to post some photos of the real faces and places mentioned in Darkest Hour. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at Dan at Based on a True Story Podcast. Let me know if you've left those ratings or review, and I'll make sure to get a sticker out. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>